We're in a series that we're calling What Jesus Started. And the reason for the series is our mission is to continue what Jesus started. Well, it's good to remind yourself regularly what Jesus started so we know what we're supposed to continue. And that's what we've been doing for the last few weeks. Now, we've been looking at a number of passages in the series, all from the Gospel of John. So as we get started this morning looking at our passage, I thought I would... um, share with you a a few little tidbits or facts about John that you may never have put together before. John has 21 chapters. Gospel of John, 21 chapters. The first 10 chapters, 10 chapters, they basically deal with 30 years of Jesus' life. 10 chapters, about 30 years. The last 11 chapters deal with one week in Jesus' life. Five of those chapters deal with one meal, and one whole chapter deals with one prayer. Kind of shows you um, what in John's mind is most important and significant. What's he giving most material to? Eleven chapters, one week. Five chapters, one meal. One chapter, one prayer. That's the prayer we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 17. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, clue you in. We are overhearing Jesus' prayer. He's not speaking these words to his disciples. He's not speaking them to us. Jesus is praying to his Father. Did you ever notice? Hearing is one thing. Overhearing is another thing. When you overhear something, you get the real news, right? You get the real stuff. For example, did anybody ever butt dial you? And you answer the phone. Most of the time, it's garbled, right? You can't. But every once in a while, after a few seconds, you realize they didn't intend to call you, but you hear what's going on. And if they're talking about you, you get the real stuff, right? You're overhearing. I read on Instagram this past week of a rather diabolical thing that this uh, group of uh, girls were doing, high school girls. They would leave, intentionally leave, one of their cell phones in the car with a group of guys that they were with, but they'd leave it on record. They'd hide it. Then a few minutes later, they would call from another phone and say, hey, one of us left our phone in the car. Can, can we stop again? They'd pull over. Then they would get the phone that's been on record for the last few minutes, and they would overhear what the guys were saying about them when they got out of the car. That's diabolical, right? Hearing's one thing. Overhearing is something else. Let me read John 17 and overhear what Jesus prays. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They know with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Overhearing. It's a big deal, isn't it? Do you notice Jesus not only prays for his disciples, he prays for us, those that are following him because of their testimony and the testimony that heard that on down the line it goes. Well, what we're going to do, we're just going to kind of fly over at about 30,000 feet looking at different incidents. The first thing we're going to look at is who. Who actually is praying? Now you say, well, Jesus is praying. You said that a few times already. Yeah, but sometimes we forget. This uh, year so far, we've looked at just a few of the titles that Jesus gets in John's gospel. I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door, the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Life only comes through me. That's the one who's praying. And he's praying for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. Occasionally, uh, 
people will say to me, uh, Charles, I'll pray for you. I have been. I will pray for you. And I always appreciate it. You don't know how much I need that. You know, the one person that immediately comes to mind when I think of somebody praying for me is uh, Linda Williams. Uh, Linda is one of our uh, women's Bible study teachers. She's a godly woman, you know, knows a lot about the Bible and Christian. And she'll often send me a text. Uh, she'll probably send me one today after the message. And she'll remind me of something in it. She'll encourage me. She'll correct me and every now and then. And the text will always end by saying, Charles, just want you to know, I pray for you every day. I appreciate that. I need that. But you know what I need more than that? I need Jesus praying for me. In John 17, the king of the universe, the bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, the vine himself, prays for us. That makes a difference. That matters. Prayer changes things. His prayer changes eternity. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Who's praying? Jesus is praying. He's praying for us. Well, when does he pray? Well, kind of in a nutshell, we know that this prayer is kind of right after the Last Supper, you know, the first communion. That's when the prayer happens. But John designates it a little differently. The first verse says this, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you're a John reader, you know that John loves the word hour. And you also know this, in his gospel, hour always refers to something very specific. Let me uh, rehearse for you. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding. Remember the wedding in Cana, that's where he turns the water to wine. And remember, uh, they run out of wine, and Mary, right, his mother comes around. Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus responds, woman, why are you bothering me with that? What's he say? My hour has not yet come. Huh. The time for his glory to be, hasn't yet come. Fast forward, John chapter 7. And Jesus is saying some pretty radical things. People are understanding he's claiming to be God. And the religious leaders get all upset. And they send a detachment of people to get Jesus, to kind of arrest him. And here's what John 7 says. But they could not lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Huh. But here in John 17, he says the hour has come. Oh, yeah, one more. In John chapter 12, right before Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right before that dinner commences, hours used again, and here's what John writes. Jesus replied, right, right before the Last Supper, the hour has come. There it is again. It's not come, not come, not come. Now it's come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. He even explains in John 12 what the hour is. Look, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces a giant harvest. What's Jesus' hour? The hour is the hour in which he's going to be glorified. It's the hour of his death and resurrection. 
It's the hour in which Jesus will be planted like a seed, but once the seed is planted, a multitude, a giant harvest results. That's the hour. And so John's been kind of giving us these breadcrumbs all through the gospel, and finally you get to the prayer in John 17. And he says, uh, Father, the hour's come. It's time. And it begins. Have you ever uh, had a conversation with someone uh, that knew they were going to die very shortly? All pretending is stripped away, right? What's really on their heart, what they're really all about, is right there in front of you. In Jesus' hour, this is what he prayed. He prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for us. I don't know about you, I need that. What did he pray then, right? What exactly did he pray? Well, he prays a number of different things, and I would encourage you, you know, over this next week, read this prayer every day. Um, it's not a prayer that we can actually you know, emulate, but it is a prayer that will give you confidence and give you a sense of peace and will also remind you of what Jesus calls us to. So I would encourage you, you know, just come pray, read this prayer every day and see what difference it's going to make in your life. The first thing that, um, that I want to call your attention to, and there's a ton in the prayer, I want to call your attention to the fact that Jesus prays and says, they should go, they should go. This prayer is all about mission. It's all about mission. Now, you may say, well, I read through it, and Charles, I just listened to you. The word mission doesn't appear. Oh, yes, it does. The word mission is nothing more than a Latin word for sent. And what's the heart of the prayer? Jesus says, Father, as you sent me, I'm now sending them. That's mission. Father, as you sent me out in mission, I am now sending them out in mission. That's the heart of the prayer. Father, you sent me. I've accomplished everything you want me to do, so my work's done. Now, before I leave, part of what you've sent me to do is to send them to continue the mission. What did Jesus start? He started God's mission. What does he call us to? To continue the mission. See how that works? You know, in our day, uh, missionaries sometimes get a bad rap. They're imposing their culture on other people. They're destroying, you know, native lands. And doing, uh, you know what uh, missionaries actually do? Missionaries represent. That's what they do, right? They represent by tearing down myths. They represent by destroying falsehoods, by representing the reality. Missionaries speak, right? Kind of like if you think of ambassadors from other countries, if you think of salespeople for honest salespeople, right? If you think of honest salespeople, what are you doing? They're representing the company. They're explaining how this particular product will actually meet the customer's need. They come and they show, they speak, they're representing the company, they're representing their country, destroying myths and falsehoods, and speaking as to how the product how this could actually solve the problem. Now, one of the things you'll hear 
in our world and probably other cultures around the world. And it goes something like this. Well, you know, it really is bigoted to kind of push your ideas, especially religious ideas, off on someone else. Well, I'm not sure that's bigoted and narrow-minded. Think of it this way. Suppose you had an illness, an ailment, a pretty serious one a couple of years ago. But through the right medical treatment, you know, you got in touch with the right physician, you went to the right place, you got the right medication, you got the right treatment. And without lots of distress, you were actually healed. There is treatment there. Now, everybody doesn't know about it. You found out about it and you experienced health. Would it be narrow-minded and bigoted if you knew someone else that had the same disease, was unaware of the particular cure, and if you sought to persuade and convince in a loving way, that wouldn't be narrow-minded and bigoted. That would be loving, wouldn't it? If you know the solution and you're seeking to bring it to someone who needs it, that's not narrow-minded. In fact, when someone says to you, you shouldn't be pushing your ideas off on someone else, what are they doing? They're pushing their ideas off on you. So they're guilty of what they're saying. You should, it's a crazy thing. Missionaries go to, sh to show. Missionaries go to speak. And Jesus, the missionary, goes to save. I was trying to think this week. Uh, how in a nutshell could I explain Jesus' mission under this, Jesus being the missionary? Here's what I think. Since we put ourselves in God's place, isn't that right? We acted as if we can make the decisions. We're in charge. All of the universe should revolve around us. Since we put ourselves in God's place, and now the consequences of that come, Jesus comes to put himself in our place. Since we put ourselves in God's place, thinking that we're God, we're able to make the decisions. We'll live however we want. We're going to make, call our own shots. Make since we put ourselves in God's place and now bear the consequences of that, Jesus came and put himself in our place, taking the consequences so we can be reunited and reconciled to God. Jesus says, go. Father, as you sent me to represent, to show what the values of the kingdom are, as you sent me to speak, of the, what the solution is, as you sent me to save. So, Father, I now send them. That's what he prays. I'm not sure you like that, but that's what he prays. But he prays for more than that. He prays that we should go, and he prays that we should love. Did you notice that? It kind of shows up in a number of ways here. Maybe the most pointed place is a little further along in these verses. It's kind of metaphorical, but you kind of get the point. I pray that all of them may be one. That's unity, right? All in one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we're... Don't you get the idea? Jesus kind of wants us to be one. He wants us to be family. Okay, I admit. I like sentimental inspirational, sappy sports movies, all right? So I like Miracle. I like Hoosiers. I even like Rudy, even though he played for Notre Dame. 
I like invincible. I, I like that. They are kind of sappy, and you, yeah, but, but I like that. And I kind of like blindside. And there's one seed in blindside that kept coming to my mind as I was reading John 17. Now, if you haven't seen Blindside, you can check it out. But in Blindside, this rather um, elevated, higher-crust Southern family adopts a street kid. And he's big, and he's strong, and he's fast. So immediately everybody thinks, well, he needs to play football. Problem is, he's, he's got a pretty low football IQ. And it just so happens that practice one day, the coach is going through the rules. Do this, right? It's all about technique. Technique. Rules, regulations. His adopted mother is sitting in the stands. She then walks down onto the field. She walks past the coach. The coach doesn't know what's going on. She goes over and she grabs, his name's Michael, uh, Michael Orr, he did play in the NFL, um, by his jersey, and she says this. Michael, that is your quarterback. When you see him, I want you to see me. Michael, that is your tailback. When you see him, I want you to see SJ. Michael, you want to protect your family, don't you? They're bad guys over there. They want to hurt your family. You're not going to let them hurt your family, are you? No, Mom. Michael is transformed. But he's not transformed through technique. He's not transformed through rules. He's not transformed through regulations. He's not transformed through ritual. He's transformed through love. He's transformed through family. And Michael becomes a star football player. He becomes what he was built to be. Huh. Don't you think that's kind of what Jesus is saying? We're not going to grow into what we were built to be as followers of Jesus through technique, rules, regulations, rituals. We're going to grow into what we're designed and built to be through love, by allowing Jesus' love to invade our lives, by allowing that love to kind of come from us, and by loving one another. That's the point. But it's tough, right? I mean, look around. This is an unlovable bunch. And, and that is the point. In fact, Jesus says, I give the world the right to judge you and your faith based on how you love one another. How do you think we're doing? God gives the world the right, the responsibility to judge our faith and the validity of the gospel by how we love and treat one another. So what are we representing? What are we showing? What are we speaking? What, how's that working out? We've got a really good opportunity to do that right now. Right now in our culture and in our world. Every one of you has heard about the Supreme Court decision to get rid of the federal regulation and right to abortion. They pushed it back to the states. And 
there are some that want to gloat in that and stand and celebrate. There are others that are discouraged by that and think it's wrong. Let me say this. We don't come to our position on abortion by politics. We come to our position on abortion based on the gospel. God made human beings in his image, right? They're to be honored and they're to be valued. But at the same time, we get our response to what happens in the world, whether it be politically, educational, economically. We get our response to how we deal with things from the gospel as well. Should we be treating those who are angry at the decision by being angry and hating them back? Be care- I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, be careful who you choose as your enemy and opponent because you will be like them. We need to be loving to those that oppose and to women that are caught in a crisis. They're not the enemy. We need to show love and compassion. It's not a time to puff out our chests and gloat. It's an opportunity to show compassion and love and to treat people how Jesus treated us rather than treat people how we think we're being treated. It's a pretty good opportunity to point people to the gospel. That's what we're about. The abortion decision is not the main game. The abortion decision is an opportunity for us to help people understand their hearts, to understand their minds, and to call them to their need of Jesus. That's where transformation and change happens. That's the real game. We're to go, and we're to love. And there's one more thing, and you may not find it. It may take me a while to get there. You know, we don't have much time. We need to limp. The heck's at me? Well, if you followed the first two points right now, you're probably feeling pretty weak, right? And that usually happens at a wedding, wedding ceremony. I, I like to get the bride and the groom to the point where they're feeling, why in the world are we doing this? If this is anything like what he said, we're fools. Yeah, it's right at that point where they're ready, right? And hopefully right now you're ready to say, I can't do that. I can't go. I can't go and show and speak and save. I can't do that. And I can't love the way Jesus. I'd say, good, good. You're right where God needs you now. Here's how Jesus says it in the prayer. And make no mistake, I'm not, I'm not saying you should be proud of this. Jesus says in the prayer, the world hates them and will hate them. Now, that's a reality. You may feel some of that occasionally. Let me just add, as you follow Jesus, we will experience some hatred and pushback. Just make sure the hatred from the world comes from following Jesus rather than from you being obnoxious. All right? We're not to be critical, judgmental, and obnoxious. If the world hates you because of that, they should hate you because you're a jerk. But if they're hating you for following Jesus, well, that should be expected, right? Why are we surprised when people in the world living by a different script with different values and different priorities, why are we so surprised that they don't like us? We're living by a whole different script. Our response is not to hate them back. Our response is to love them back, right? So here's what happens. We live in a world, we live in a culture where the world is pushing back and the world is angry and the world is hating us. What's the temptation? The temptation is to run away from that. 
the, the, the temptation to protect yourself, isolate, form little church, holy huddles, right? Gather with people just like us, live in an echo chamber. No, no, no. Jesus says, go, go into the teeth of that. Go into the midst of that hatred and anger. You go into the midst of it and you love them and you show compassion and you speak truth and you point them to the solution. You go into the teeth of that. He also mentioned something else in those verses. Protect them from the evil one. We heard a little bit about that in the interview. Protect them from the evil one. Yet evil one's a reality, friends. And notice how this evil script works. Hatred from the world will cause us to separate, right? Isolate, because we don't like being hurt. The evil one tempts us to conform and become just like the people in the world, to respond the same way, to have the same values. No, no, no. We got to thread the needle. We don't isolate and separate. We go into the, into the world in love and compassion. And we don't conform. We maintain that difference of value, different, of different priorities. That's how we live. Going in, but going in with love. How do you do that? You limp. You can't do that, right? I can't do that. We're weak. People are unlovable. We're human. We want to respond naturally the way we're That's how we're going to respond. We limp. That's why Jesus in the prayer says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. And then he, here's the key. As I have sanctified myself, I then sanctify. Now, the word sanct, that's kind of a churchy word, right? It comes from the same kind of word group as holy. That's another churchy word. But let me tell you, I was just on vacation for a few days with my two grandsons. So I know a lot about holiness and holy wars. The word holiness technically does not mean like super moral. The word holy means different, separate, separate to a purpose. So here are the holy wars my grandsons have. They're my goggles. That's my dump truck. Get off of my squishy turtle. Don't take my ice cream. They're holy wars, right? Those things in their minds have been set apart for them and when the other one comes to take the thing that's theirs, they have a holy war, right? That's set apart for me. That's mine. You can't have it. That's what holy means. So here's what Jesus says. Father, I have been set apart for the mission of winning them back. I've accomplished that mission and I'm headed home. I now set them apart to continue what I started. You know, that mission's a whole lot more significant than padding your 401k, getting the new vacation house, having the best marriage, the best looking kids, having your little life together, creating that great resume. Those all pale in comparison to that mission. God didn't set you apart for any of those things. He sent you apart for this thing. To go, to love, and to limp. Because in and ourselves, we can't do it. We're weak. We're failures. We have lots of faults. And we're finite. And when you live in touch with that, you're ready for the grace of the gospel to flood your life 
and give you all you need to go to love and to limp. Just one last question I want to look at and be brief. For whom does Jesus pray? Um, look, I didn't make this. He doesn't really pray for everybody in the whole world that ever lived. That's not who he prays for. Here's what he says. I pray for them. He even says it. I'm not praying for the world. Father, I pray for those you have given me out of the world. They're yours. He's praying for his original disciples. But then toward the end of the prayer, he kind of expands it a little bit, and here's what he writes. My prayer is not for them, not for the original disciples alone. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message. If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in him. Jesus prayed for you. And the Bible tells us today, he's praying for you. I need that. We need that. Just one question as we end. If Jesus prays for those who believe that God sent him to accomplish what they couldn't do, to take their sin, because they tried to be God, Jesus came to be in their place. If you believe that, Jesus prays for you. If you don't believe that, you're not following Jesus. He's not praying for you. But he's willing to pray for you. Believe, follow. And Jesus will pray for you. And when he prays, he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them. Go, love, limp. That's the mission. Falls in your court. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that John recorded this prayer as he overheard it, and now we can overhear it too. Lord, help us to be humbled and awed by it, and help us to live in light of it. Help us to go, but to go in love. Help us to go with a limp, with humility, not with arrogance and pride. Thanks, Jesus, for putting yourself in our place, because we're guilty of putting ourselves in God's place. We pray in your name. Amen.